You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The quest to demine Ukraine faster than Russia can mine it, Luxembourg's election, a globe holds its breath, and the quest for the world's most amusing wildlife photo. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers whose camouflage proved least convincing were Alex Milnes and Camilla Lazinska. They'll discuss photography, serious and less so, and we'll also hear from former Colombian president and Nobel Peace Laureate Juan Manuel Santos. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Alex Milnes, Monocle's photography editor and Camilla Wojcinska, Monocle's deputy photo editor, whose surname I pronounced correctly at the second go. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. And this is exciting. This is the people who take care of the visuals discussing their job in an entirely audio medium. You're just going to have to describe a lot of things. Um, I did want to start by asking you both, because it is both your first time uh, on the daily, so we've had to divide up the owl suit, which we traditionally make first-timers wear. Um, Alex is wearing the head. Uh, Camila is wearing the body. If Alex sounds a bit muffled, that's the reason. Um, But, Camila, introduce yourself, if you would, to our listeners. People who have bought the magazine um, have gazed upon... Uh, what you have wrought, but they have not heard you before. Um, Okay, great. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, I'm Camilla. I uh, commission photography for our lovely magazine, Monocle, and also our sister publication, Confect. Mm -hmm. I'm also responsible, or have been for the past year, uh, for um, editing uh, the Monocle Minute which uh, you might be receiving in your email every morning. People, We should remind people that literally anybody can do that for nothing. You just have to subscribe to it and it arrives every day. Yeah, and we just redesigned it. So it has this new um, beautiful design. Um, it's nice and easy to view, nice and easy to read. Um, so yeah, you should definitely subscribe. Your, your other informal job here at Monocle, we should say, Camila, is being the person who gets pestered every time there is a Polish name in the script. Yes, I am the official uh, <laughs> Polish surname pronouncer at Monocle. Um, we should put that on your business cards as well. Uh, Alex, I, I do feel like I, I have a an insight uh, into your job due to the near similarity of our Monocle email addresses. I feel like about 20 or 30 times a week, I'm really not exaggerating, I have to write back to some importuning photographer saying, actually, you're after... And I hope importuning photographers are listening to me right now. It's ami at monocle.com is Alex. Um, I get the impression, Alex, you are an extremely busy man because I get the impression that a great many people want to take pictures for Monocle and, frankly, I wonder if I should be knocking this broadcasting lark on the head and instead charging them all 10%. Well, we do get so many submissions of photographers, which you always kindly pass on to us. Um, (laughs) 
with uh, yeah an amazing breadth of photographers across the globe, which we're really lucky to do. We work with some amazing people. Uh, we will come back to you both shortly to talk about some of the photography in the current issue. But for the benefit of any importuning photographers listening, is there anything in particular you are looking for in a new contributor? Or is it just one of those things, you know it when you see it? For me, I think I just know it when I see it. You You look at someone's work and it's the way they tell a story, the way they capture someone. There's all these multiple stories we shoot across the globe of um, amazing reportage stories, fashion stories. There's, yeah. Well, we'll be talking about some examples of those in the current issue shortly. But first, earlier this week, I attended the Warsaw Security Forum. One of the guests at the forum I spoke to was former British Army Major General James Cowan, now CEO of the Halo Trust, the NGO which, for the last 35 years, has spearheaded mine clearance operations in dozens of countries. Halo has been operating in Ukraine since 2016, and I began by asking James to outline the scale of Ukraine's current landmark mine problems. I think the way to think about it is to compare it with other uh, equivalent uh, landmine challenges around the world. And I say equivalent because actually there is no real equivalent. They either come in the form of conventional war such as uh, between the two Koreas and the DMZ between North and South Korea is a mine line 178 kilometres long. It's not touched because of the, the politics of the two countries. The Ukrainian equivalent is 1,000 kilometres long. So that gives a, a distance. But I think time is also important. The Halo Trust was founded in Afghanistan in 1988, and we're still there now. And if, if the money isn't there, then the problem will last indefinitely. A mine is, a, is in effect, a hermetically sealed plastic object, and it will stay in the ground, water will not get in, and it will remain lethal indefinitely, not for years, not for decades, potentially for centuries. Is it possible to put then a theoretical timescale on, again, looking at Ukraine, even if you had all the possible resources you could want and the war stopped tomorrow, how long would it take to solve the problem? That with a thousand kilometre long front, which is still being defended by the Russians, work on that sort of Ekin line can't begin until the Russians are pushed off it. And once they are pushed off it, it is essentially three ranks deep in terms of the defences. It's a combination of entrenchment, wire, uh, anti-tank obstacles and the prolific use of landmines in which General Surovikin has substituted Russian manpower. He didn't have enough for Russian mine power. And Russia began the war with huge war reserves of ammunition and it's expended a lot of that artillery ammunition, but it hadn't expended its landmine reserves. So it's used those landmines in the Sarovikin line. And he took a decision to essentially quadruple the width of each um, one of these mine belts from 120 metres to 500 metres. And that means that it's incredibly deep. It's also incredibly dense, and many of the mines are laid side by side which means that they can have a daisy chain effect. One goes off and it causes a sympathetic detonation. So it's very lethal as well. So this is a massive task. Now, that's quite daunting, but many of these mines have been surface laid, they didn't have time to dig them in, which means they can be seen, so they can be mapped, and if they can be mapped, they can be bound in terms of getting the problem limited to where the actual contamination is. One of the worries is that the Ukrainians are exaggerating the scale of contamination. They're saying 174 
8,000 square kilometers of the country is contaminated. Well, that's the area that's been fought over. But actually, we've, we've done a, a, a trial survey in, a, in 50 square kilometers, and we found that actually under 7% of that was genuinely contaminated. So good survey can save billions of dollars of clearance and years and years of time. So back to the Suravikin line where it will be densely contaminated and I think it's a thousand kilometers we should estimate around a workforce of 10,000 people about a thousand plus mechanical assets and a time span of about 10 years. And, and have the, the practicalities of mine clearance evolved at all in recent years? Is it, is it still very much having to deal with one device at a time? So I'd point to two really important innovations. The first is that open source information, satellite data and drone data gives us the capacity to wide area surveillance. When you marry that up with AI, artificial intelligence, we can do machine learning as to where all these mines are and get a very detailed understanding of the problem. So that's incredibly helpful. Second thing is robotics and we're using remotely controlled vehicles rather than putting a man in the machine and risk the individual we, we can do robotic clearance and if the if the uh, armored tractor uh, is unmanned and it hits a mine there may be some damage to the to, to the tractor but it won't be put up it, w it won't have a human hurt in the process doesn't mean we don't need humans we do need humans because many of these areas are forested many of the areas are urban and many just have complex terrain which requires a human in the loop. But we can use mechanical assets in very large areas and those areas are often agricultural, open field systems and of course that, that means we can get that land back into productive agricultural use quickly which is very important for Ukraine's economy. Just finally then, to, to bring it back to Ukraine in terms of the work you are doing there, what does Halo Trust still need? What, what would help you actually do it in terms of assistance from Ukraine or other governments that would help you get it done faster and better? So I'd point to a number of things. The first thing is that the Ukrainians are incredibly supportive, but they are, they do, they do, they do, they are weighed down by terrible bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy is very old-fashioned Soviet in nature, and it means that an order is given at the top, but it doesn't necessarily get followed through at the bottom. And therefore, two important pieces of accreditation are still pending for us. We're not allowed to explosively destroy landmines yet. I mean, we do that everywhere else in the world, but that means somebody else has to come out and do it for us. That's incredibly time-consuming and wasteful. So they need to change that quickly. Secondly, they need to accredit all this... Uh, mechanical uh, assets and fleet that we're bringing into the country. They haven't done that yet. They need to quickly and they need to overcome this bureaucracy where they need to help us to help them. So that's the, the, the first thing the Ukrainians need to do. The second thing the international community needs to do is to stop funding by hand to mouth. You know, there's lots of panicky funding decisions made and we need to move to a strategy of planning long and planning large. We are going to be there for 10 years. We need a steady workforce. We need to plan for that workforce to be in our employment for a very long time, for a number of years. And we need our donors, all the major OECD countries and private donors, not to fund us for six months or a year, but to fund us for five years, 10 years.
That was Major General James Cowan, CEO of the Halo Trust, speaking to me at the Warsaw Security Forum earlier this week. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio, and let's bring in our panel now, which is, of course, Alex Milnes, Monocle's photography editor, and Camilla... uh, I've got it wrong again. It's Wojinska. Wojinska, <laughs> Monocle's deputy photo editor. And this is why we always ask Camila about the Polish pronunciations, including that of her <laughs> own name. Uh, but let us now apply ourselves to the task of cross-media pluggery as we discuss the current retail awards special of Monocle magazine, which is on a newsstand near you now, and the forthcoming edition of Monocle's Entrepreneurs, which will be on a newsstand near you imminently. Um, we are going to do... Actually, what would be really helpful, or what would have been helpful at the start of the show, is if we told our listeners who obviously already have the new edition of the magazine to go and get it off the shelf, where I'm sure they have it carefully filed along literally all the others, so they can follow along with our discussion, because we're going to talk about some of the photography in it. Um, And I thought it would be interesting, Alex, to talk about basically how the pictures get chosen, because this is... A lot goes into these decisions, I know, because I overhear the conversations when I'm writing the scripts for these programs. Um, You have a bunch of things in the current issue. They're bookmarked with um, bits of pink paper. Um, What are we looking at? I do. I've got the retail survey marked up, which is a great example of the uh, stories across the globe we do. So we've got an amazing story in Bangkok. Um, My personal favourite from the retail awards is the store non-fiction in Seoul so that's shooting a perfume shop uh, with these incredible beautiful uniforms Um, and when it comes to picking the pictures we're looking to show the space the brand what they do and in this particular story these uh, incredible uniforms which are customized to hold perfume samples in the pockets (laughs) I, I did want to ask, though, especially when you're selecting the portraits of people to go with a feature, is is there a particular, I guess, monocle aesthetic you're trying to fit things into? Because I've worked on assignments a lot for Monocle magazine with photographers all over the world, and I, I, I tend not to be that journalist because I've met them and they're insufferable who thinks it's their job to tell photographers how to do their job. But I have once or twice noticed a particular person and just said to the photographer, seriously, money in the bank, take their picture. Um, I've been right about half the time, I think. Is, sounds good. Is there anything in particular you are looking for? For me... I like it when someone's looking happy in the picture. That's the main thing for me. <laughs> um, and then in this instance, it's someone at work in the shop. Um, it could be you know, someone very cool looking. We like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. What about you, Camilla? Yeah, I like the candid shot shots like that really like add to the story. And it like like you're saying, it could be someone that's looking particularly cool that day, dressed in something. You know, just something that makes them stand out. But um, I think the mix of a, a candid portrait and then something more formal always works really well on yeah, page as well. Definitely, uh, Camilla. What page do you have the issue opened at there? Oh, I skipped all the way to the back to a wonderful <laughs> expo shot by Andrea Pujato, who uh, often contributes to uh, to our issues. Uh, he went to Milan to shoot the beautiful ladies of, it says, Vintage Age, um, called... Tactfully uh, put. <laughs> uh, Scurus, if I'm not butchering Italian, I think I might be. Uh, I mean, I've, I've butchered Polish already. <laughs> we can call it a draw at that point. Alex, if, if there's anybody's language you'd like to make a mockery of, today is the show to do it on. 
Um, <laughs> but, but but these are these are photos. They're 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 amazing pictures. Um, that and and they 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 fit to that template that, that Alex was discussing. These are cool looking people. Um, but we've managed to catch them in a way that makes it look like they're just sort of living their lives. Yeah, absolutely. We we um, this is the expo is fully street casted, which means we uh, stop people on the streets of Milan uh, based on purely what uh, how they look, what they're dressed like. The the story is about how uh, like uh, yeah, fashion ages, and it's uh, in like the most wonderful way. So. Um, so yeah, well, with with an assignment like that, Alex, what instruction do you give the photographer? Was it literally go to Milan for a f- few days and find cool-looking women? Well, yeah, with that, luckily, <laughs> luckily, firstly, Andrea shoots for us so much; he absolutely knows the monocle style mm. and the convex style in and out. Um, and on this story, Grace was with him. Grace, one of our writers, um, so they just knew who to who to pick out on the street. Andrea just gets it. Um, sometimes from us he doesn't even need that much direction he just completely knows which is incredible to have with I mean yeah the, I, th- I think that that's something that develops with writers or photographers when they and a given title become familiar with each other but in general um, and either of you can pick this one up how much instruction do you give photographers or are you generally happy to trust them within a, a set of fairly vague parameters uh, for me, it's a bit of both. As photographers, I've worked with multiple times over the years who I trust, but with every story, there is always going to be something important we need to capture. So we do often send very detailed briefs, uh, references from past shoots, references mm-hmm. from their own work, perhaps other photographers' work. Um, and it varies on what the story is and who they're shooting or what they're shooting. Uh, just finally, Camilla, before we move on to an altogether more whimsical photo story, um, what do you think about that? Do you think it's important, and this is slightly self-serving on my part, because as a writer, I, I have always en- enjoyed working with those editors, and we do have them here at Monocle, who will respond favourably when you call them midway through the assignment, <laughs> just say, yeah, it's it's going to be something completely different. Um, do you like to allow some room to, to be surprised yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it's like a collaboration. And um, I obviously have things that I'm looking for in the images. And I always will communicate that to the photographer. But I choose them based on like their personal style, based on what they've shot before. So I'm definitely open for them to just like interpret the subject completely like on their own. Um, And I think this is when you get like the most interesting visual stories. Well, I hope that's encouraging for any photographers who may be listening, and I cannot overemphasize this. It's A-M-I at monocle.com you want. Uh, And elsewhere in photography news, though, while you're both here, the shortlist has been announced of the Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards, which since 2015 have been celebrating those wildlife images less concerned with showcasing the majesty of nature red in tooth and claw and so forth, and more with acknowledging pictures you've probably already seen attached to an insufferably whimsical caption on the internet. This year's contenders include a waving bear, an idle seal, and a querulous swan um do camilla i'll ask you first do you have a favorite oh absolutely um i was very drawn to the beaver that's um seems to be um 
uh, doing something to his teeth. Um, flossing, I maybe think. Maybe flossing, they, perhaps. They think I think, like yeah, doing. yeah, yeah. Um, but particularly because it really looks like Alex whenever I ask him a question <laughs> from across the table. I can't believe it. <laughs> um, Alex, do you have a particular favourite and is it because it reminds you somehow of Camilla? Well, you mentioned the waving bear. <laughs> I did mention and the waving bear. The waving bear does in fact remind me of Camilla. Because every time <laughs> I, do wave at Alex. <laughs> I shout across the office, she looks up and waves. So. I wave to ask a question. <laughs> I, I, I hope this is genuinely affectionate collegiate bonhomie here, and I am not witnessing some passive-aggressive meltdown of a hitherto fruitful Absolutely working is. relationship. Um, I, see, I, I was going to cite the querulous swan largely because last weekend I was literally hassled by a querulous swan. Oh, my God. I, I was attempting to enjoy a sort of picnic lunch uh, in Hyde Park, and we had sat down and thought this is a nice spot and i got literally bullied by a swan they're dangerous they're they are aggressive it stalked straight up to me glaring at my sandwich and just made it very very clear that it just wasn't going anywhere and and what do you do at that point i i was already worried about being the guy who ends up on youtube swearing at a swan <laughs> well and they, I mean, can, I, they can break your arms so. i mean i believe so i <laughs> I, I wasn't going to get into a fight with it apart from the danger there there is obviously the the threat to one's dignity but um, we, we literally just had to pack up and go somewhere else and hope it didn't follow us. They're terrifying. I swim with them sometimes in the serpentine, so I, I, I'm on edge around them. Yeah, I, I, I would be. It was it was quite weird. Um, I, I should have taken a picture of it. I might be a contender. But um, I, I, did, I do think there is a broader point here about photography, though, and whether, um, I'll, I'll put this to you, Alex, that the internet, as it does with so many other things, uh, has dragged photography down to its level. Because these are all photos which people have reacted to by making or shucks cooing sounds basically yeah when i when i looked through all of them i did feel like i was looking at um kind of a real life disney thing they they didn't feel real and it kind of yeah it's that human i we have i think we feel like we have to humanize everything humanize creatures um and they are essentially all most of those very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Camilla, do, do you have concerns that we are unduly anthropomorphizing the natural world here? Um, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, I enjoy looking uh, at the goofy pi pictures of animals. Um, so, oh yeah, don't get me wrong. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, those photos are now broadly available on the internet. You will be unsurprised to learn. Uh, Alex and Camilla, our photography department, thank you both very much for joining us. Uh, and to Luxembourg now, where Prime Minister Javier Bettel's political fate hangs in the balance as voters head to the ballot box on Sunday. And we're sure that you, like us, will be getting some tins in and preparing for a long night staying up to watch the votes come in. After a decade in charge, polls suggest Bettel's time could be up as the opposition Christian Social People's Party currently appear to hold a lead. Monocle's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco caught up with our correspondent in Luxembourg, Annick Weber, to look ahead to the vote. We are at a quite interesting moment where actually everything is possible still on Sunday. A lot of people are still quite undecided about who to vote for. And just to give you a bit of context, we've now had two legislative periods with a three-party coalition between the Democratic Party, the DP, the DP, the Luxembourg Socialist Workers' Party, the LSAP, and the Green Party, with Xavier Bittel of the DP as our prime minister. 
We often refer to this coalition as the Gambia coalition because the colors of the three parties match those of the Gambia flag. Before that period, Luxembourg had a decade-long rule of the Christian Social People's Party, the CSV, in various forms of two-party coalitions. So the big question this Sunday is whether Luxembourg will maintain the Gambia coalition or whether there will be a new coalition which might see the leading opposition party, so the Christian Social People's Party, return to office. And how is, uh, you know, Xavier uh, Betel perceived by in, in the country? I mean, he's been in power for a decade now. And of course, he's known as well to be one of the few LGBT leaders uh, around the world. I mean, is he well liked or perhaps people think that maybe 10 years is a bit too much in power? I think he is still very popular with the Luxembourgish population. He is the one that has held this three-party coalition together, and he has managed to do so quite successfully. He has also represented our country well on the international scene in all those years. You know, he quickly responded, uh, quickly reacted to the war in Ukraine. And so he still, I think his chances, he still has chances, definitely. He's, he's well perceived in the country and well received. One thing I would like to talk to you, uh, we know that more or less half of the country are foreign-born. Who actually can vote in this election? Uh, because I also, you know, I, I was reading that the leaflets come in different languages. So I presume, you know, some of the people that became citizens or, or got a passport in, in the last decade or so now can vote. I wonder if this will change anything. Well, I think already an interesting point is that Luxembourg is one of only a few European nations where voting is mandatory. So because I think we have a small population, every voice counts. Um, but of course, not everyone living in Luxembourg then is allowed to vote because you need to have the Luxembourg passport. So that means you need to be a Luxembourg citizen as opposed to a Luxembourg resident. And actually, half of our residents are made up of foreigners. It's all quite complex. And sadly, a lot of these foreigners don't actually have a vote in the or a voice in the parliamentary vote. There was a referendum in 2015 where actually the majority voted against uh, giving residents uh, the chance to vote in parliamentary elections. But still, you know, a lot of these, a big proportion of the foreigners living in Luxembourg have in the meantime got the Luxembourg passport. So we have still a very international demographic. Finally, Nick, two questions in one. First of all, I want to know if you are voting, if you voted already. And second, what are actually the main issues for this year's campaign? Is there I don't know, some countries, the economy is discussed quite a lot, but perhaps we have issues of crime and foreign relations. Is there a topic that you think it's in the mind of Luxembourgish voters? Well, to answer your first question, of course I'm voting. <laughs> because, well, I have to, otherwise I'd get a penalty, but also because it's my right and I want to vote. Then coming to your second question, the main topics, well, number one topic this year is housing. Luxembourg is suffering a major housing crisis. Property prices and rents are rocketing countrywide. So this, together with the energy crisis, has brought about the top theme in the elections. 
how do we make housing affordable again? Do we move from the traditional ownership model to one where people are incentivized to rent more? Or do we need to build more government-sponsored housing? But how do we do that without breaking social diversity? It's it's a very complex one. And actually, leading on from this, we're coming to the second major theme in the election, which is the economy and growth. Do we keep the high growth economic model? Is it still sustainable? Or has this growth happened too fast? Do we switch maybe to a moderate growth model? Or do we just need to keep the growth to keep up the wealth? So it's that's also a major theme. There's also talk about uh, tax reforms, creating a fairer tax system to increase the purchasing power of people. Then a third major topic is family and work-life balance. So there are parties that want to reduce the working week to 38 or 36 hours even. Some want to give an extra week of annual leave, so six instead of five weeks. Also, there's talk about more parent, giving more parental leave, which is also something that has you know, a lot developed in that field in the last uh, two legislative periods of the Gamba, Gambia coalition. That's also a major topic. So to put it in a nutshell, high housing, the economy and the working conditions are the main three topics of the elections this year. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaking to Anik Weber. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. And finally on today's show, the annual One Young World Summit has been taking place in Belfast. It brings together 2,000 young leaders from around the planet, counselled by influential political, business and humanitarian leaders. One of those in attendance was Juan Manuel Santos, former president of Colombia and recipient of the 2016 Nobel Peace Prize. President Santos joined me earlier from Belfast, I began by asking about the importance of the event. I think that uh, right now, young people have a tremendous responsibility. And it's our fault. It's my generation's fault. And further back, many generations, we failed to do what we should have done to preserve Mother Nature, to preserve our environment. And uh, we need to stimulate young people to do what we did not do, to take the very difficult decisions, many times unpopular decisions, to save the planet. And uh, there is a linkage, direct linkage, between climate change, which uh, many people uh, define as peace with nature, with peace in general, because you cannot have peace uh, with human beings if you don't have peace with nature. And so... It's very important to make young people understand the importance for them to engage and to be much more proactive than we did in my generation or in past generations. And that is why I think events like this one are so important. Do stop me if this sounds like a bit of a reach, but do you think it is arguable that some of the techniques uh, of peacemaking between people can be applied to, as you put it, uh, making peace with our own environment? Is, is there a similar mindset, similar thinking skills that could be applicable? Oh, yes. For example, the Rome Statute, which is uh, an international treaty to facilitate peace processes, have defined 
the rights of the victims, the truth, the rights to justice, the rights to reparations, and the rights to non-repetition. You can apply that perfectly in peace with nature. You have to repair, we have to repair what we have damaged in terms of destroying the environment. We need to take action in, in order to not continue repeating what we have been doing for so many years that has that is causing the disaster that we're seeing. We need climate justice, so the element of justice is also present. And nature has been a victim because we have mistreated nature. So there is a, a very clear linkage between the way we approach a, a peace process, a, an armed conflict like the Northern Ireland or the Colombian peace process, and what we're going through right now in the world vis-a-vis -vis climate change. Hey, on that subject, I did want to ask you a bit about where you're speaking to us from. I know you've said before that you, you came to think of Northern Ireland as a bit of a laboratory, a bit of a test case uh, for how you could uh, forge a path to peace in Colombia. And uh, one of the times we've spoken to you before, we had you on at the same time as Jonathan Powell, who, of course, uh, did so much to bring about the Good Friday Agreement, Tony Blair's former chief of staff. What's it like for you being back in Northern Ireland now? Well, I will tell you an anecdote. Back in uh, 1975, the 9th of October, I was walking in Piccadilly with my then boss. I was a student and working in London at the International Coffee Organization. And suddenly a bomb exploded in the In-N-Out Club in Piccadilly. And uh, we were thrown to, to the ground if we had been walking slower, I would not have been talking to you right now. That was 1975. That was my first contact with the IRA. <laughs> and today, today, I embraced Jerry Adams, and he embraced me 48 years later. And uh, many things have happened since. The Northern the Island Peace Agreement has had a tremendous influence in the Colombian Peace Agreement because one of the main negotiator, Jonathan Powell, mm. was one of my main advisors. So he used to tell me this worked in Northern Ireland, this did not work. And I learned very much from the process that he negotiated. And at the same time, we enriched our process by not making the mistakes that you have made in Northern Ireland. Uh, and comparing notes, for example, we did a big effort in the implementation of the peace process, which is a very important part of any peace process, or putting the victims in the center of the negotiations and their rights as a way to heal the wounds of so many years of, of conflict. And those are the type of lessons that uh, I think any other country that wants to make peace and they have an armed conflict should learn. No conflict is similar to any other. But you have to learn how to extract the lessons, the good lessons and the bad lessons, in order, and the bad ones in order to not repeat them. At an event like the one you're at, when you're speaking to people who may grow up to be the, the peace builders and peacemakers of the future, do you think their job is going to be made more difficult or easier by the 
the landscape, especially the media landscape in which they're operating? Because when you think back over historical peace agreements, I mean, peace agreements of the past, such as the ones you were involved in in Colombia uh, and the one we've been talking about in Northern Ireland, there's a lot of having to do things on the quiet, having to do things in secret. And that, I think, has become a lot harder to do now. Um, Does that make it harder to corral a peace agreement or do people just need to think of different ways to interact with each other? Well, I think you're making a very good point and a very interesting point. I come from the world of journalism. Before a politician, I was a journalist. And uh, I am very worried about even how journalism right now in many places is being developed because uh, you start competing to see how your ratings are doing and then you go to the extremes and you feed into the polarization that almost every country is going through right now. So... I do think, answering your question, that uh, what is happening in the media landscape is making uh, peace processes more difficult because it feeds the extremes. Well, I'd just like to come back finally then possibly thinking through that observation to your levels of optimism or otherwise read the peace agreement or the ongoing attempt to find one in Colombia, because as you said, these things are never perfect. Uh, It it is an ongoing process. And this is now being overseen by uh, President Gustavo Petro pursuing what he calls uh, his total peace plan. When you see how he is going about it, are you optimistic? And he, he is, of course, someone you once sacked when he was mayor of Bogota in a row over rubbish collection. I mean, has an amount of peace now descended between you and President Petro? Well, if, if he understands that implementing the peace process that we signed with the FARC is the basis for the construction of what he calls total peace, I think he will, in a way, build a process that could be successful. If he does not do that and thinks that he can bypass the implementation of the peace process with the FARC, then it's like when you're building you're building a building and you have the first floor. If the first floor collapses, the rest of the building collapses. So what I'm hoping, and I'm, I've told President Petro that many times, by implementing the peace process with the FARC, you are building the grounds for your, your total peace. Do that, otherwise you will fail. That was Juan Manuel Santos, former president of Colombia and Nobel Peace Laureate, speaking to me earlier. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Alex Milnes and Camilla Wozinska. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs>